Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Bill McNabb, and this is the third part of our series on the letter of James from the New Testament. It's called Plain Talk for Tough Times because it was written to the early church during very troubled times of persecution and difficulty, and it was meant to be helpful to them in trying to figure out how to live as a Christian. And so we have our scripture lesson today. This is part three of the series, Faith is a Verb, and the, the scripture is James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Well, scripture is a problem when you can't hear it, but it's also a problem when you can hear it. Mark Twain famously said that it's, it's not what I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand that bothers me. A message like this, the, the same passage in the, the modern translation, the message goes like this. Dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person has it? There has been said that there's some tension between Paul's letters in the New Testament and James, because Paul emphasizes over and over and over again that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And he wants to make that very, very clear. James, on the other hand, emphasizes, well, what do you do after you've been saved by grace? How do you live that way? And so his emphasis is on showing your faith by doing good works to those who are in need. Let's remember back to the famous movie, The Godfather. Michael Corleone is succeeding his father Vito as the head of the Mafia group. And uh, he has arranged to have killed his rivals in the other parts of the clans and families. And in the end of the movie, there's a, a chilling scene. It's actually the scene of the baptism of Michael's child. And they're in a church, and the priest says, asks him the questions that are asked of uh, all people as they baptize children. He says, asks Michael, do you renounce evil in all its ways? And he says, I do. And then the movie cuts to the scene of these people being mercilessly killed, slaughtered by arrangement of Michael. Words versus actions. James says, it's not what you say that counts. It's what you do. 
There's a poem that comes from a book called Listen, Christian, that goes like this. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was in prison, and you crept off to your chapel in the cellar to pray for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you discussed the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. Homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. Lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem to be so holy, so close to God, but I'm still hungry and lonely and cold. James is saying that true faith shows itself in the activities of our life. What evidence is there in your life that you were a Christian? Well, you could start off by saying, well, I'm watching this after all, right? Good. Great place to begin. Point number one. What else? Anything else? Well, hopefully you could point to your checkbook or your visa statement to show that you support God's work financially. Maybe you could point to the fact that you're on a board or a committee or the refugee task force or that you teach Sunday school. There's an old question that says, if you were charged with being a Christian and put on trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Good question. John Calvin said, faith alone justifies, but the faith which justifies is never alone. This time of racial trouble that we've been having in America has pointed out the disparity between different groups of people in our country. I remember seeing a San Francisco Chronicle article one time that compared the life of a boy uh, or girl that grew up in West Oakland to one that grew up in the hills of Montclair. They said that a black child in West Oakland is much more likely to be born into poverty than a white child in the Oakland Hills. In school, he or she is less likely to read at grade level and more likely to drop out. As an adult, he or she is more prone to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, or stroke. Why is there such a difference in the COVID death rates between blacks and whites? The boy in West Oakland can expect to die 15 years earlier than someone who lives in the hills. 15 years. I knew there was a huge dis disparity between the, the life expectancy in Malawi, where our other sister church is, than in Piedmont, but 15 years from West Oakland to Montclair? There is so much that we still need to do in our society and the time has come to do it. You know, there comes a moment, an opportunity, in which people are given the chance to stand up and to do the right thing. That moment to act came during World War II for a small village in France called Le Chambon sur Lyon. I've mentioned to you before the story of this marvelous town, this little village, the mountains in eastern France, their story was told by a historian, Philip Halley, in the book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. During World War II, this little village of 5,000 people ended up harboring and sheltering 5,000 Jewish children, sheltering them from the Nazis. They refused, unlike many other villages in France, they refused to go along with the order to deport the Jews from their town. And when the word of that got out, other Jews from other towns began flocking into Le Chambon, and they ended up 
hiding them in farmhouses and homes, sheltering them from the Nazis. The question is often asked, why did this one village and a couple others like it, why did they act differently than so many of the other villages in France? There are two parts of the answer. One is that this village were Huguenots. They were Protestants. Never more than 5% of the population of France. The Huguenots have a history of being persecuted themselves by the Catholics in France. So they knew what it was like to feel persecution and to be a minority. But the other reason is that almost all the town attended one church, the Iglesia Reformée, where André Trocbe was the pastor. And he preached a gospel of nonviolent resistance, the imperative to do good things in the name of Jesus Christ. He talked about it over and over and over again. So when the time came, the church was ready to respond. In fact, the women of the church turned the basement into a, a laboratory where they forged documents for the children and gave them new identities, a new meaning of the word women's group. And so they worked and they, together to do this. In fact, one of the women, the older women, who faked a heart attack when the Nazis were searching her home, later said, the pastor always taught us that there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came, we knew what to do. We knew what to do. There's a time for that for all of us. A time where to put aside the words and to begin to act. Jack Reamer wrote this. We cannot merely pray to you, O God, to end war, for we know that you have made the world in a way that man must find his own path to peace within himself and with his neighbor. We cannot merely pray to you, O God, to end starvation, for you've already given us the resources with which to feed the entire world if we would only use them wisely. We cannot pray to you, O God, to root out prejudice, for you've already given us eyes with which to see the good in all men, if only we would use them wisely. We cannot merely pray to you, O God, to end disease, for you've already given us the great minds on which to research out cures and healings, if we would only use them constructively. Therefore, we pray to you, God, instead, for strength, determination, and willpower to do instead of just to pray, to become instead of to merely wish. In conclusion, many of you have visited the city of Segovia in Spain and have seen the magnificent stone aqueduct that was built there by the Romans in the year 109. For 1,800 years, it carried water from the mountains to the hot and thirsty city. Nearly 60 generations of men and women drank from its flow. Then came another generation, a recent one, who said this aqueduct is a great architectural mar marvel and it ought to be preserved for our children as a museum piece. We shall relieve it of its centuries-long labor. And they did. They laid modern pipes to bring water into the city of Segovia. They gave the ancient bricks and mortar a reverent rest. And the aqueduct began to fall apart. The sun beating on the dry mortar caused it to crumble. The bricks and stone sagged and threatened to fall. 
What ages of service could not destroy, idleness disintegrated. Brothers and sisters, we were not made to be idle. We were made to serve. James says that we were born to do good works, to serve the less fortunate, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. James reminds us, faith without works is dead. 